We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. I have an important idea to discuss today. The road to recovery runs through your childhood. My witness is Eddie Caparucci, who's a licensed professional counsellor and a problematic sexual behaviour specialist from Georgia, USA. He's the author of Going Deeper, How Your Inner Child Impacts Your Sexual Addictions and Removing Your Shame Label. What makes Eddie's work particularly interesting is that he used to be a sex addict himself and can bring that extra layer of understanding to the problem. Later, we'll meet his wife, Terry, who helps wives and partners deal with the trauma and grief associated with their men's inappropriate sexual behaviour. Now, I like the term inappropriate sexual behaviour that Eddie uses because we're going to be talking about a cluster of behaviours that stretches from lots of affairs right to things that can actually end you up in jail. One thing to explain is that this is not a celebrity problem. We tend to think of celebrities like Tiger Woods, but it's seen in men from all backgrounds and all walks of life. The road to recovery runs through your childhood. It's the central idea in your work, Eddie. And perhaps the best way to understand this is to look at your own childhood. What happened to you when you were very young? Well, first, uh, Andrew, one, thank you for having us on today. We really appreciate the opportunity to come in. What happened with me when I was five, my father died of a heart attack at the age of 38. My mother was left with four children, my two older sisters and a baby brother that I had that was only probably about eight months, nine months old. But what happened with my mom immediately after my dad had died was she had a nervous breakdown. And she had to be hospitalized. So what happened is each of us kids were shipped out individually to relatives. Now, these are people I don't know. I've never met these people. So here I am now, a five-year-old, living with strangers, no mom, no dad, no sibling. And no one, more importantly, no one's explaining to me what happened, what went wrong. And this lasted for about a year. And then finally, mom you know, got herself together. And we were able to come back. And then what happened was she had another nervous breakdown and we were shipped out again. And this time we were shipped to different relatives individually. Gosh. So now I'm with other people who I don't even know. And again, now I'm about six and it's very troubling, not understanding. The message that that six-year-old received indirectly was the people who love you are not reliable. The people who love you will abandon you. And so therefore growing up, my mom now had to go off to work, of course, to support us. This is the 60s. And my two older sisters needed to watch over me. And, you know, you can imagine two sisters who are teenagers, you know, trying to deal with a seven-year-old boy. They don't really want to be bothered with it. They want to come home, watch American Bandstand on TV and not, you know, deal with a child. So I spent a lot of time in my room by myself, very isolated. We lived in a city environment, so it's not like I could go downstairs and go outside and play. So I didn't really even have a friend until I was almost 10 years old. You know, I didn't wow. know how to socialize with people and how to communicate and how to effectively act 
around other people. So I had that whole learning curve. I had it developed. But basically, you know, when I finally went into treatment, what I discovered was I had an attachment disorder. I had what's called an avoidant attachment. You know, I don't let people in very close. I have a wall that's up and you know, it's very difficult to allow people to come in on the other side of the wall. And with that, anytime I was involved in any type of relationship, starting at the age of 16, I have one foot in and one foot out. But I never realized it. I didn't know what that was. So that basically again gives you an overview. And when you talk about it like that, it sort of makes perfect sense that you would find it very difficult to trust people because people that you did trust disappeared with no proper explanation. That's correct. That's correct. And again, remember, I have a child not having a lot of worldly experiences and being more emotionally based in our thinking. You know, I had to come up with the explanation for this on my own, and that is people just don't care. Okay? No, you're not rationalizing the fact that someone died and that someone else got ill. You're not rationalizing the fact that sisters are overwhelmed by trying to deal with a young boy at that time. They're not going to be put in that position. So we don't understand that concept. So therefore, for me, it became the whole idea of, you know, people just don't care. Did you think there was something wrong with you as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. You always start to go back to the idea of, you know, why do people not want to engage with me? And remember what I said to you before, no one ever talked to me about my father dying. So it becomes, so why did my dad leave? Why did my mother leave? You know, why don't my sister want to be part of my life? So yes, it definitely, you internalize it and you think that there is something flawed within you that people see. And to add to this heady combination, your mother remarried and the stepfather was abusive. Tell me about him. Yes, uh, she remarried when I was 11 and he was a very simple man. He dropped out of school when he was in fifth grade. He worked as a shipping clerk. You know, for him, it was go to work, come home, sit on the couch, drink beer, watch TV, and then go back to work again the next day. He needed everything done in a perfectionist way. Now, here it is as a child, you know, growing up with, again, three women, not having, you know, a lot of rules and responsibility. And now here comes this guy who just barges in and said, we need to do it this way, this way, this way, which was fine. I'm willing to do it. But again, it was never good enough. So no matter what I did, he found fault in it. And I wound up being punished because of it. He wasn't really physically abusive. He was more verbally abusive. Although occasionally he'd like grab you by the hair, kick you in the butt. One time he did break a plate over my head. So there was some of that that took place. But it was more of him just wearing you down that no matter what you do, you're incompetent. That was, again, another very troubling message for someone to receive at a young age. I mean, I'm just sort of sitting here with my mouth open at sort of to somebody from England, it seems amazing that nobody stepped in and help was given to this family. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Well, you know what, Andrew? It's almost when you get in that position, people are just in a sense of survival mode. And that's what my mom was. It was like, how do I survive with four kids? Well, I got to go out, I got to make money, and I have to rely on my two older daughters to take care of the younger 
the boy because there weren't a whole lot of options that were available for her at that time. And then when she remarries, and again, as I said to you, you know, he was a very simple man. He didn't make a lot of money. So she still needed to work and she worked the evening shifts. So therefore, she didn't see a lot of the abuse that took place at times. And again, now as an adult, you could just see that she was very overwhelmed doing the best she could. But as a child, it's again, why are you, you know, abandoning me again and leaving me with this lunatic? And I think we've got all the key ingredients for something going very badly wrong. We've got abandonment, we've got neglect, we've got isolation, we've got loneliness and abuse. I mean, you've basically got the full deck of cards, haven't you? Yes, we do. And so what comes out of this is is you build a false persona. My false persona became, you know, a narcissistic persona and actually even an antisocial that's been diagnosed too with that, where I become and I think of myself as bigger than life. You know, I am the most important thing in the world and everything should center around me. And as my charming wife will tell you later on, I still get caught up in that occasionally. (laughs) Old habits are very hard to break. (laughs) And, you know, mental disorders are even more difficult to break. But that's what it became. I had to tell myself a different story. You know, I couldn't live. Well, I could have. But if I would have lived in that mindset that I had, I would have became very weak and passive. And I was determined that was not going to happen. So therefore, what I needed to do was create a persona of strength, of one that had a lot of confidence and that would gain a lot of respect from people. So you sort of became your own superhero, which on one level is absolutely brilliant, but I suspect it was also a huge problem as well. Tell me about the problem part of it. Well, yes, it is a huge problem. I'm not quite sure how brilliant it was. I mean, it's the fact that, again, it comes back to our ability as human just to be able to figure out how to cope with situation. Okay, I'll re-put it as a good coping strategy then. There you go. That I would definitely agree with. It was a good coping strategy. But what it led to was this sense of, you know what, everything needed to evolve around me. And it also became this idea that, hey, you know what, I, I'm the smartest guy in the room in my opinion, is what matters the most. And what happened along the way, as you could well imagine, it caused me to alienate a lot of friends. Actually, I was the best man. I was supposed to be the best man at one of my dearest friend's wedding in my early 20s. And I was asked to step aside because my opinion of how he should have been running things was just being overwhelming him and his fiance at the time because I had the better solution for how they should do that. So again, it was those kind of things. It was the guy who sent an autographed picture of himself to all his friends of a Christmas gift one year. Okay, you know, it was those kind of things that went on. I had a, I had a mirror in my locker in uh, middle school and high school that was supposed to serve two purposes. One, I could make sure my hair was good when I was, you know, in between classes, but also it was like the girls knew that, oh, he has a mirror. We can come over and check our hair out while we're at his locker. So again, it was always how do I be at the center of everything? And after a while, as you go on in life, you know, that also becomes very tiring. And when did you discover sex? Well, sex, I actually discovered with masturbation around 14. Sex with girls at 16. 
So it was fairly young to do that. And for me, having the one girlfriend was just not enough. I needed another one. I needed the backup plan. And again, I didn't think of it that way. I didn't think of it at all. Like my friends used to say, oh, he's just a skirt chaser. And unfortunately, you know what? That was something I kind of wore with pride to know that people thought of you that way. Because again, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, look, I could do something good. I could do something right. Not a very healthy thing, though. And was pornography an issue? I think we're probably about the same age. So there wasn't internet pornography at this point. Yeah, pornography at 16 or so. There was some, but you got to remember that was pre-internet. The only way you're ever going to come across pornography is if one of your friend's parents had porn. And that we would see. So therefore, you know, some of my friends, I did grow up in a neighborhood later on where we moved when I was 11 that had lots of boys. So therefore, I did wind up making lots of friends at that point. So therefore, I'd be able to be exposed to limited pornography like Playboy and such based on, you know, again, what my friend could wind up stealing. When did all of this actually become a problem? Because in a sense, a guy, you know, having more than one girlfriend at school is sort of funny in a rather warped kind of way. But as you get older, it becomes more complicated, doesn't it? So when did it become a problem for you, do you well, think? Well, I would actually say that it became a problem when I first started the dating. Because what it did now, it set up a pattern for me that I would continue to do. And believe me, even back then, it problematic. Because as you leave one girl to go to someone else, they're scorned and there are issues that come with that. So again, I was just starting to lay the groundwork for what will be dysfunctions in my relationship moving forward in my life. So it was at the beginning because again, the key here, Andrew, is that I did not know what emotional intimacy was. So therefore, what I did was I confused physical intimacy for emotional intimacy. If I'm physically intimate with someone, I'm showing them how much I love them and they're showing me how much they care for me. So it became a compulsive need, I think I'm hearing you say. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was like, you know, constantly searching for more and more and more. Then finally, I wound up working at my uncle's gas station. Even though I started working there young, at some point, there's lots of porn that starts coming into that place. So now there's lots of very graphic magazines that I'm seeing. So now you're seeing all of this and you're looking at it and you're saying, wow, you know what? I'd love to try that. I'd like to see what that's like. So now as you're dating, you know, and they're still girls at this point, you're kind of pushing them, say, hey, you know, let's try this, let's try that. And I'm sure I put, you know, many in position where they felt very uncomfortable. I can see it's quite painful remembering because nowadays you have the added insight of actually being able to think of what was the impact on the other half of this, of the girls concerned. Whereas my guess is at the time you didn't think about them at all. No. Well, at the time, I thought I was actually doing them a favor. Again, I thought, hey, you know what? You're with Eddie Caparucci. It's like, you know, you should be really happy about this. And, you know, I treat you really well. And, you know, I'm actually, from a sexual standpoint, I do well. I mean, it was just, again, it was in my head that you should be, you know, honored that you are actually dating me. And therefore I said that, you know, that, that narcissistic disorder that was out of control. So no, I did not feel that way at all. Now, having getting into the world of counseling you know, over the last 10, 11 years, really starting to understand the 
depth of the pain and the hurt, understanding how I've even hurt Terry over the years. Yes, I have a lot of empathy for the women who are betrayed and what they go through. And I've, I even tell my clients, if I just work strictly with men, you know, I'll tell them, you know what, my allegiance is towards your wife. It is not towards you because I do not want to see you cause any more pain and hurt for her again. And what was the incident or things that brought you suddenly to realize that this couldn't go on anymore? I was in my second marriage and I was toward the end of it. As it started to just kind of fall apart, I got tired. The thing is, I left my two marriages, even though they said, hey, let's try to work it out. I said, no, I got to leave because there's something wrong with me and I'll just continue to hurt you. And therefore, with that, it became, hey, you know what? I really need to go and start talking to someone. And I did. I found that woman. And I remember after the first session when she sat here and tried to tell me about an abandonment issue and telling me that my father, you know, had left me. I go, I was like, my father didn't abandon me. He died, you know? And then it was like my mother. She's like, well, your mother abandoned you too because she had a breakdown. I go, no, that's not it. And I was very annoyed with her, very upset with her. Then I was like, I left. I was like, I'm not coming back. I'm just not going to come back. And I went out to my car, sat in my car, and I cried like I never cried before. And I was never a crier because my stepfather at one point teased me about that when I was 11. And I remember I made a vow to myself, I will never shed another tear again. And here it was. It was like, you know, 20 something years later, 25 years later, it's now here come all those tears, including when my mother died, just not crying at her funeral. But, you know, it was at that point that I realized, wow, this woman's onto something and doing more work in that area to, you know, try to get myself to understand through the insight, you know, as you said before, what I believe is why, why does sex have a stronghold on me? You know, why do I think, feel, and do the things I do? And now what can I do to change? And I wasn't at the changing point there. Really where I was right now was just the trying to gain the self-reflection and to understand what the problem was. I have such a clear picture of you sitting in your car with the tears streaming down your face. I mean, it's an incredibly powerful picture. And I imagine you crying there for several minutes nonstop. (laughs) It was not crying. It was sobbing. I mean, my shirt, the front of my shirt was soaking wet. I mean, it was really intense because, again, you had over 25 years of tears that had just been built up. And then finally to understand, I've mean, sat here uh, connecting with my inner child, which I didn't know at that time, but I was connecting with my inner child. And here was this poor little boy who just felt, you know, abandoned, alone, and that no one cared about him. And sitting in that car there, all of that came back. And how did it feel to meet him? It sucked. I mean, because, <laughs> I mean, I, well, you know, who? nobody wants to touch the nerve, Andrew, nobody wants to touch that raw nerve. We see it, Terry and I see it today in our practice, okay? It happens quite often where we need to just kind of gradually walk people through the process to help them, you know, realize, hey, you know, it's okay to sit with emotional pain. Because for me, I believe that we look at addictive behaviors, all addictive behaviors, what's really at the core there is our inability to sit with emotional distress. So therefore, what do we need to do? We have to find a distraction. 
So we run away to something that we can escape to, whether it be food or drug, alcohol, exercise, you know, social media, whatever it may be. But I'm not going to sit with this pain. And that's what we need to teach people how to do. They have to learn to sit with their pain and realize it's not going to kill them. And that's why I love your saying, you know, the road to recovery goes through your childhood because you have to learn to do what you couldn't do as a child because nobody was helping you. Children can't sit with pain. They need help for somebody to contain the pain and contain them. And if you haven't had that, you need somebody to teach you when you get older. That's right. And that's what we do. We teach people how to sit with their pain and their discomfort. And as you can imagine, <laughs> there's a lot of people who really don't like doing that, but they see ultimately what the benefit of it is. That idea of being vulnerable is the idea of strengthening your emotional IQ. And again, I am far from perfect. You know, I've moved the needle somewhat, but you know, there's still a lot more growth for myself also. There's a phrase that I really like, and that's the wounded healer that Mm -hmm. unless you've actually got a wound, you can't really understand and empathise. I think, you know, the reason that I have such a strong picture of you in that car is because, you know, I've been in the equivalent of those cars and I've cried (laughs) a huge amount because us men are taught that it's girly to cry. And, you know, the worst thing you can possibly be is girly. Mm -hmm. But in fact, actually, it is a source of incredible strength if you can reach those emotions. And, you know, I think that it's important that you you're here today saying these things because our emotions are supports, they're guides, they're sort of clues about how to behave and what to do. And if you shut yourself off from them, you're sort of alone in the world. You're definitely alone in the world. And the thing is, you try, we're trying to shut off the negative emotion. Well, when we go and we do that, we also shut off positive emotions too. Because again, feeling, feeling is uncomfortable. Therefore, you continue to train yourself that way. But yet, I got to connect somehow. And this is when men turn to, okay, I'll connect physically because they don't know how to connect emotionally. Yeah, they may sprinkle in some emotional stuff. Oh, here are flowers, here are cards, things like that. Because that's one of the acceptable ways of men connecting, isn't it? You know, the two ways it's acceptable for men to communicate is with a punch and a kiss. There's almost nothing in between. Right. But that winds up leaving your spouse, your partner feeling used after a while. Yeah. Cause it's like, oh, anytime you to approach me, you have to hug me. At some point, you're expecting sex to follow that. And we are because it makes us feel wanted. Now, along the way of your recovery, you met Terry. How did you and Terry actually meet? Well, I'm going to let her walk you through the whole story because I think you get a better perspective than me. So we're kind of at the very beginning of the AOL age. And actually, we live about 200 miles apart. And we've had a basic introduction through someone, but we start talking all the time online. I'm down in the Washington, D.C. area. At the time, I'm an engineer for the National Security Agency, and he's up, you know, closer to the New York area. I always say that because it helps to kind of paint a picture of the fact that There are many of the red flags that I missed along the way because we were doing a long-distance relationship. So we begin to talk. He's very charming. (laughs) He's safe. I wasn't really looking, you know, to get married or go too deep in a relationship with somebody who's far away. And so we're more like friends to start with. And what were the red flags that you missed, do you think? 
he wasn't completely a year out of his second marriage. And as with many women, you know, he told me the story and we sometimes tell ourselves the story that we're much different. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of differences between myself and his previous wife. She was 10 years older than him. I'm 10 years younger, you know, and I tended to look at the stories along the lines of, well, I'll be different. And I didn't understand a lot of the work that he had been going through. And uh, I certainly had never heard anything about sexual addiction, right? But it's easy to tell yourself that when you've only got the weekend or a day on the weekend together, we're very amorous and all of this. And it's just normalized because we have five or six days apart where we're only just talking, right? And so, you know, if you fast forward a year and a half later when we get married and I move in with him in our first house and everything, When he begins to show that side of him, the side that, you know, wants to attach through sex versus the avoidant side who's not had somebody in their household all the time, he'll go through periods of advance and retreat, right? But most of the advance, as he said, a hug needs to turn into sex, right? And I'd never been over-sexualized and I didn't recognize what exactly that meant. And so what was this like for you? Well, for me, like I said, he was charming. And in the year and a half that we were together, it seemed very, very courtly. I grew up in a small town in Tennessee and what I had understood was courtly, right? It seemed very courtly, but then we tended to start keeping score of the relationship after marriage based on our sexual encounters and um, enough was never enough. And even today, I work with a lot of women that the outcome in their relationships of, you know, the sexual addiction is the trying to keep up with a sexual fire that you do not understand and you did not start. And how do you deal with that? Initially, you know, you're a newlywed and you try to keep up and you try to be kind of open and uh, show vulnerability and you negotiate, right? Beginning of marriage, everything is almost a negotiation if you haven't lived together ahead of time. But after a while, I started seeing signs that this was problematic. And, you know, neither one of us are therapists at this point. I'm an engineer and he's in pharmaceutical advertising. And so I think Eddie went through a period of bargaining, right? I'm doing this within the context of marriage. I am faithful. You know, he's bargaining because he's not to where he had escalated before. But for me, I'm looking at it like, you know, our whole relationship should not rest on whether it's been 24 hours or 48 hours since our last encounter together sexually. I actually need connection and love. And it doesn't feel like connection when you are being sexualized, you know. It feels like a demand. Yeah, yeah. And keeping score and just an unsafe environment after a while. I think I'm going to speak to Eddie next, if that's okay. okay. Yep. So, Eddie, you're making progress in the sense that you've entered therapy. You've got a new relationship. You're not having affairs anymore, but something isn't right. What did you do? Well, basically, the next turning point for me is a spiritual one. And again, this is a lot with Terry's help. Terry had a much stronger Christian background than I did. She was raised a Baptist. I didn't really go to church very often. And when I found God, that really 
started to help me to better empathize about what my behavior, what I was doing, the pain I was causing so many people. And I began that process and it just continued to grow and grow and deepen. And as it became deeper and deeper, you know, more and more of those behaviors started to fall away, started to shed. And that's where, again, actually where God called, put something on my heart to say, hey, you know what? I don't want you in corporate America any longer. I have something else for you to do. I want you to get into counseling. And again, very long story, a great story. Really, you opened up every door along the way, but that sent me back to college to get another master's degree and do all the work I needed to do for the state to become licensed. And after I got licensed, I became a generalist. I was just seeing everybody with different things, depression, anxiety, and such. And then all of a sudden, I noticed these guys start walking through my door. And I'm like, oh my God, they look like me. You know, they're all struggling with porn and sex and things like that. And then I realized, okay, this is where I need to be. This is my niche. And that's why I went back and got certification, you know, how do you really help people with this? And then with that, I really came to the conclusion that, you know what, again, I believe all of this lies. I kept hearing all the stories from all these men that the real issue lies in the unresolved childhood pain points. We are runners. We've been running away our entire life from that emotional pain. And we have to learn to sit. With that pain, we need to learn to be vulnerable and open. And that's what the whole inner child recovery process is about. That's what, you know, have I created that process and identifying the nine kids who impact your sexual addiction, your pornography addiction. And do you have to have a belief in a higher power for this to help you? I don't believe, no, you do not have. There are many people who have recovered from all types of addiction, not having a higher power. However, for me and what I've seen, you know, what God has done in many people's lives, that belief has tremendously helped. And that's why, you know, Terry and I, we are also Christian counselors. We don't push that on people. I have many men who come to see me who are not Christian. They may be of another faith. They may not have any faith whatsoever, but yet, you know, I work with them. And what I say to them is, hey, you know what? I will be very respectful. I'm not here to try to convert you. However, I can't promise you that Jesus Christ will not come out of my mouth, okay? Because the Holy Spirit's in this room and it's going to happen. And I've never had anybody push back on me. They've always been very receptive of that. I do believe that having a faith in, in God does add to our ability to heal. So tell me about the nine types of inner child. Yeah, basically where they began with, as I said, if I'm working with all these different men, I started to identify what were the nine reasons why men abuse sex. And with that, then I took that and I said, you know what I want to do? Because shame, Andrew, is such a major component that serves as a stumbling block for any kind of recovery. You're very familiar with that. You understand that concept. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to see what I could do to remove the shame. And so I externalized the addiction. Okay. And I'm not the first one who's done that. Other people have done it too. But I took it and externalized it with the inner child. So with that, those nine reasons became nine different kids. So for example, we have the bored child or the unaffirmed child, the child who wound up with a lot of 
criticized a great deal or didn't get much in the way of praise. The unnoticed child, that was me growing up, okay, unnoticed, got a lot. The emotionally voided kid, this is the number one child that most men associate with because I have found in my practice that nine out of 10 men who come to see me, they have low emotional IQs. They really, they struggle to identify what do they really feel beyond feeling angry, sad, fearful, happy. And even if they can identify it, they have a difficult time expressing it to be vulnerable. Plus, they're also their anxiety increases dramatically if someone tries to share their emotion with them. So therefore, what they'll do is they'll try to fix it or minimize it, shut it down in whatever way. There's the need for control child. Again, somebody who grew up in a very hectic, chaotic environment, and they came to the conclusion that, oh, you know what? If I don't have control, bad things happen to me. So therefore, now they become more control freaks because they have this erroneous thought that, well, if I'm in control, nothing bad can happen, which of course is not true. We have the entitled child, which I also call the spiteful kid. This is the kid who, you know, always felt devalued when they were younger. They felt they didn't have a voice. And so now when their worldview is, you know, I deserve this because life's not fair. This is one of the most troubling kids that we have. The inferior weak child, uh, again, their worldview is that they've been told they don't measure up with other kids. They're inadequate with that. So therefore, what they'll do is they will overcompensate by becoming more aggressive, try to become stronger, or they become very passive. So therefore, it's either I must use somebody or I must be used. Distressed child, again, another one who grew up in that very anxious environment. But over time, what they come to do is they ignore, they suppress their anxiety and they don't even realize they're very anxious. But what they do is they'll use things like pornography or other sexual activity in order to deal with those situations in which there's too much stress. And then finally, what there is, is they're the early sexually stimulated and sexually abused child. So therefore, they stumbled across sex at a very early age, became mesmerized by it, or also they've been abused in some way. So those are the nine different kids. And I think it's important to realise that there doesn't have to be abuse or sexual abuse for somebody to become a sex addict. And I think that's sort of often seen as, oh, I wasn't abused as a child, so therefore I can't be a sex addict. You are absolutely correct. I mean, I have no sexual abuse in my background, and a large majority of the men who come to see me do not either. I think it's somewhere about 30, 35% who have been sexually abused in one way. What it is, is there's other abuse, okay? And really, to tell you the truth, Andrew, it's more about neglect. It's about parents who aren't there to walk a child through the key development phases that we need so that we can learn how to be emotionally attuned, so we can learn to be empathetic, so we can learn to regulate our mood. That's what it's really about. Because everybody, it's not about sex. None of this is about sex. That's really important to say. This is not just about sex. In fact, you're saying it's not about sex. If not, it's about the need to emotionally engage. See, we want something that we don't know what it is. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what it feels like. Therefore, we got confused and we said, oh, physical intimacy, that's what it is. It's not what it is. So therefore, now we need to retrain 
ourselves that I need to retrain men. And there are women also who've been dealing with this also. We're starting to see more and more of that happen. And they need to be retrained too. It's just learning the desire to be accepted and unconditionally loved. That's what we're looking for. So how do you retrain them? Well, first and foremost, I try to identify, okay, what are those childhood pain points that you've been suppressing? That's what we use the nine kids for, okay, to identify what went wrong. Because for me, I'm a big why guy. I want to know why, because I believe if I know why I act in certain ways, or I think, or I feel certain ways, I'm now empowered to make true changes in my life. So therefore, they need to understand what it is, those pain points. Second, what are the triggers that activate those pain points today? Okay. So for example, you had a good friend and you and your friend had this major falling out. You haven't been talking to each other. You run into each other on the street one day and you start talking and you say, you know what? Maybe we need to get together and maybe we could work this out. So you arrange to have lunch. Well, the day of lunch comes and he calls and he's very abrupt. He said, look, you know, something come up. I can't make it. You know what? I'll call you back and we'll reschedule and hangs up on you. And you're like, what's that about? You know, you, you feel a little uneasy. Well, your inner child, okay, who again, he is locked in this time warp where he has all of these path pain points. He goes into a storage unit and he pulls out this event when you were 11 years old and you went down to Bobby's house to play and you knocked on Bobby's door and Bobby opened the door and there's him and three of your friends sitting in there. And you're like, Hey, what are you guys all doing in here? You know, what do you call me? He goes, oh, we're just hanging out. Well, can I come in? No, my mom said we can't have anybody else. And he slammed the door in your face. And now you've got tears running down your face and you're heading home, feeling rejected, feeling that your inner child pulled out that event because he feels that this guy calling him saying, I have to cancel lunch looks very much the same. And so now your emotional intensity increases even higher. You may not even be aware of what the kid pulled out. All you know is that you're feeling a lot of stress and discomfort. And, oh, instead of sitting with that, instead of trying to figure out what it is, what do we do? We run away. I got to go find something to escape to. And whatever your addiction is of choice or that destructive behavior of choice, that's what you run to. And what's the alternative to running to the destructive behavior? Sitting with pain. Sitting with the discomfort. What happened here? Okay, let's go back to the same scenario. You know what? My intensity is growing. Okay, little Eddie, what are you grabbing onto? What's making you feel that what just happened, which I know is rejection, but we really rejected with the phone call? What I'm going to do, I'm going to walk away from adolescent mind and I'm going to go to wife mind. Was I really rejected? Well, maybe, you know what? Maybe I was. I don't know. I don't have enough information. So you know what? Why don't I give him a couple of days? And if he doesn't call me back, let me then reach out to him. And if I find that he seems still to be very tentative, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, look, you know what? Maybe you need a little bit more time in order for us to try to reconnect. And now, okay, ooh, my anxiety starts to go down because I'm rationalizing. Unlike what my inner child does, he doesn't rationalize. He just runs on raw emotions. And now by rationalizing, I can now think of a better solution versus going and running and acting out. So that's how the inner child process works. So I sit with the pain. I know what my triggers are. When I'm triggered, my kid's going to be triggered. I sit with that pain and then I go to wide mind to try to figure it all out. 
I suppose I've got two things to say to that. First of all, how powerful it is when people can actually have an image. The fact that you were able to sit there and you got that image, an image is often the first way into all of this, you know, seeing yourself as a small child alone, that image was sort of almost a door you could go through and then begin to really understand. So I think it's really important if people do have those images that they grab hold of them because they're going to be really helpful. And the second thing I'm thinking of is what I call the power of the pause. If you can pause and maybe even just taking a few deep breaths, that is actually what allows you to get out of that old behaviour and bring what you call the wise mind in. And that pause doesn't have to be very long. You don't have to sit with that pain for a long time, but long enough to break the circuit of the automatic behavior. I like that. I like how you term it, power of pause. What I tell my clients is slow everything down. Yeah, It's the first thing, and that's what I needed to do. I need to go sit and I need to slow everything down so that I can quiet down the raw emotion and start to allow the prefrontal cortex to start to work again. So I think it might be quite interesting now to look at what Terry is doing with the wives at this point. Well, let's get her in here then. Terry, I also work with couples sometimes when there's sex addiction. What is really difficult for the women is it feels incredibly personal. How do you help them deal with that feeling that if I was X, if I was Y, then it would all be different? First of all, I'm always thankful if they will externalize those words, you know, because one of the first things I want to do is normalize when we were talking earlier, you know, when we talked about my experience with Eddie and missing the cues and recognizing that I had ended up in this place. It's easiest to turn that inward and say, maybe the problem is really me. I'm not open-minded enough. Maybe I'm not all of these things. But the truth is, when it comes to sexual addiction, you can't be young enough, skinny enough, smart enough. It really has nothing to do with who you are as a person, as the spouse. You know, it was Eddie's story. Very early on, I hope to, you know, hear that so that I can begin to help with a message of, and it's going to go further into recovery for the spouse as well. It's nothing that you are lacking, okay? And you can't cure it. It's within your husband to cure. And if you've worked with betrayal, that kind of goes along the lines and sets you up for success and getting to the point where if the husband is recovering and is doing his own work, that you keep both partners in their swim lane and keep away from this concept of if I control it enough, if I do enough of something, he'll be okay. Because as you probably know, right, you can't do enough of anything in the recovery process to make sure that he walks through those steps and decides who it is that he wants to be. Now, I can imagine some women listening to this, and when we're talking about the inner child, will Mm -hmm. say, well, all this inner child stuff is just making excuses. What (laughs) do you say about that? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I hear it a lot. There's two camps to it. And sometimes, 
you'll have some that really look at it that way as an excuse. But as I walk through it and explain that, yeah, he made his own choices. This doesn't take away the fact that these are all choices that your husband made. It doesn't take away the fact that these are choices that Eddie made, right? But helping him understand where it is, is a part of his recovery piece. It's not an excuse. It's part of his recovery piece that when you do slow it down, when you mindfully decide to go into recovery, when you want to change the person that you've become, it's important to be able to recognize the trigger for what it is. Eddie gave a great example. You know, the trigger isn't always sexual. It's often not, you know, and I've seen correlations to that story with feelings of abandonment in our men many times. And so what do they want to do? They want to feel better, so they go. And so if they can recognize that within themselves, it does give a common language, but it's not an excuse, right? Reasons are not excuses. Reasons are an understanding the building block for how to make changes. And do you find ever that the husband's behavior is actually triggering things in the wife's background as well? That So she's got sort of ghosts jumping up and down and waving their knickers in the air as well. Yeah, absolutely. Often, you know, these stories run in parallel. In order to work on betrayal trauma, we have to talk about previous traumas. And it's often very interesting to me, even if these are traumas that have been processed through and put firmly into a history story. It's often interesting to me just how parallel some of these traumas run in their life. In other words, if you've got the father who, you know, that you have to go pick up at the bar, right? And you get there and he's with another woman and you're stuck with that trauma story and the marriage falls apart. This is a couple of my real life clients. And then later on, as a husband starts to be more and more distant, you never want to be that person that shows up to the bar again or wherever they are and confronts it. So sometimes they bury it down deep until there's that moment of D-Day, you know, discovery that cannot be ignored anymore. And sometimes, you know, the parallel trauma will be an emotionally unavailable parents on either the mother or the father side. And you end up marrying that Imago image, trying to again and again fix a childhood issue through a relationship. But that emotional IQ that's very, very low is quite often covering up the sexual addiction itself. So if you have one piece of advice for women who are dealing with betrayal or sex addiction or love addiction or any of this other unavailable material, what would be your best piece of advice for them? I think it is to understand it in this journey. It's not just your husband's journey. He has his part, but to also work through your own betrayal trauma, be gentle on yourself and recognize you're also in a season of grieving and To seek to do the work yourself, find safe people, ones who don't judge, right? Sometimes that's within support groups. Sometimes that's within girlfriend groups. But to have a place to externalize that with people who are safe, understanding, and be gentle on yourself. Because, you know, personal trauma is brutal to go through, you know, and it sits in the dark. Your husband's sex addiction sat in the dark, and it forces you into a place of dark. So be gentle on yourself and seek the help. It's not just his journey. I love that. Be gentle and look after yourself. 
Mm-hmm. Thank you, Terry, for joining us on this programme and giving your side of things and allowing us to have such a, a rounded picture. Good luck with the rest of the work that you do. Thank you very much. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of being a member of our supporters circle is that you can write in a letter to us. And I've got a letter that I'm going to discuss with Eddie in a moment and get his thoughts. Also, if you look at the website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, you'll see a feedback page and you can give us feedback and tell us the type of topics that you find helpful and useful because it helps us to plan what kind of programs we're going to bring to you in the future. So this is a letter that's been written in by a man to us. I'm trying to leave a relationship that's caused me nothing but trauma, but I keep getting drawn back in. I fluctuate between this is wonderful and being sick with worry. There is always some drama. She calls me at 4am in the morning. She comes around to my office. One moment she's throwing the cruelest insults, the next we're making love to each other. My wise mind knows that I have to end things, but my body craves her. When I don't see her for a couple of days, I start to relax and recover. All my other relationships, like with my family, start to work better. I'm there for my son. I can get work done. But then I simply have to see her. The sex is mind-blowing. There is nothing she won't do. The passion is explosive. I'm walking on air or I'm at the bottom of a pit of despair. I don't know which it will be. I've always had all-or-nothing relationships with women. It amazes me when male friends talk about seeing someone. I've never done anything so casual. How do I stop my body betraying what my mind knows it has to do? So, does this sound familiar to you, Eddie? It certainly does, especially, you know, we look at some of the language that he uses. I've had all or nothing relationships with women. When he talks about the sex is mind-blowing, yet, you know, being away from her for a few days, we start to relax and recover. He, again, is confusing emotional intimacy with physical intimacy. And the physical intimacy for him is where he can feel very wanted and desired by this woman. You know, he, there's a great connection. But unfortunately, what's not here is there's no emotional connection. He does not talk at all about anything he finds attractive about her that has to deal with her personality, her vulnerability you know, her emotional aspect of her life. It's all what he's attracted to is her body, her ability to do anything. Because again, the sex is so mind-blowing and it gives him a sense of comfort. It gives him a sense of, believe it or not, nurturing. He feels nurtured by her physically. However, she's not capable of nurturing from an emotional standpoint, and therefore he feels this void. There's a void here. That point, if you read this letter, for him, you know, if he says, how do I stop my body from betraying my mind? I mean, this is a guy who has to get a hold of his mind. He has to start to focus on his thinking. He has to sit down and what is it that I truly want 
in a relationship and not to be guided by just his physical desire, because that's what's happening here. So what advice would you give him? My advice for him would be, one, he need to end this relationship with this woman at this point. He need to separate himself from her so that he can detox, because that's what he needs. He needs to detox. He talks about how, ooh, I can do things with my son, all of that kind of stuff. So I think, one, you know what? We need to block her. We need to get her away from us. Two, he needs to be able to start to sit and ponder, okay, again, what are the important things in his life? What is it that he truly wants in a relationship? He says, because I talk to other guys and I listen to them and I'm kind of like mesmerized by all that. Well, you know what? Talk to them more. Get a better understanding of what it is that they're feeling in their relationship. He may want to join an organization such as Emotions Anonymous. But I think he also probably wants to figure out, okay, why? Why am I so disconnected from an emotional perspective with this relationship that my focus is predominantly physical? And so therefore, I would look for that therapist who does the inner child work so that he could go in and start to touch some of those nerves, understand why do I keep doing what I do? I mean, Andrew, if you read that letter, that's the thing that cries out throughout the whole thing. Why do I keep doing this? And I think once he understands that, then he can start to put the strategies in place to be able to deal with it. And the very black and white language, what I call splitting, where it's either wonderful or it's terrible and there's sort of nothing in between, walking on air or in the bottom of a pit of despair. And most relationships don't have those extremes, do they? No, they don't, but many men do. Okay, that's the thing. And as I put the topic of my next book, my third book coming out, is about men who struggle to love. And it is that many times they are very black and white. So it's either heaven or hell. Yes. But to your point, that's not what real relationships are like. Okay. It's it's rarely that we're in those extremes. We're usually in the gray. Okay. That's very fulfilling. And actually, I wouldn't even paint it gray. I would paint it vibrant colors that are in in the middle there of healthy relationships. Yeah. We've got a whole rainbow of colors. I'm afraid, you know, gray doesn't (laughs) sound very appealing, except here in Germany, where everybody in Germany thinks gray's (laughs) a primary color. You see it absolutely everywhere. Do you actually find the term sex addiction helpful? Or do you think it's a term that turns people off? No, I don't find it helpful. And in fact, the only reason I use it like on things like my website is because that's what people search for. They search for sex addiction, pornography addiction. I do not believe we should wear the label a sex addict. Now, in the beginning, you said, yes, he is a former sex addict. I meant to correct you at that point. I am not a former sex addict. I have an addiction. Okay, I have an addiction. And I have to always be very mindful of that addiction because if I'm not, and I allow myself to get drained mentally, emotionally, physically, or spiritually, I could find myself in a place that I my risk of acting out could increase. The likelihood of that happening after 23 years, 24 years, probably not high, but still, it could. So therefore, I always have to make sure that I am fully aware of that. But no, I don't even like the word addiction for anyone. I mean, even alcoholic or drug addict. I mean, I I think they're demeaning. I think they're shameful. And as we talked a little bit about before, shame is a deterrent when it comes to helping people to heal. And we need to try to remove shame from people. Putting labels on them just adds shame. 
how would you describe it then if you weren't having to worry about Google searches? Well, I mean, for a person who come from the spiritual aspect of it, my label is I'm the prince of a king. However, for other people who may not have the higher power, for them, it is that, you know what? I'm broken, but yet I'm a good man. I'm broken, but yet I'm a good woman. Okay, we're broken. We're all broken. Join the club. (laughs) Right, join the club. We're all broken, but our brokenness shouldn't define us. In way too many cases, that's what people allow it to do. I like that. So broken and broken and recovering from it. Yeah. And you know what? That recovery happens every day for the rest of our lives. And I think part of the recovery process actually is what this podcast is all about, finding something meaningful, because it is the complete opposite of this. So as you've been a witness today on The Meaningful Life, I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Relationships. My relationship with my wife, my relationship with my two grown children, my relationship with my two Labradors, relationship with people in my church community. That's what really makes life meaningful. But I also have some good outlets, especially like my writing. I love to write. Like I said, I'm working on my third book. I do a lot of uh, blogging. That to me is giving back. You know, it is what I have, the information I have, the knowledge I have, the insights I develop to be able to go and to share, to help people. My ministry or practice, to me, that is just an honor that I get a chance to walk with these people and be able to help them. So at this point, we're going to be saying goodbye to most of our listeners. But if you are members of the supporter circle, you'll be able to find out the three things that Eddie knows to be true. And if you'd like to find out details about that, here they come. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.